Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 338 of Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah Rue. We've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we sure do. We start off first with an author feature with acclaimed author Julia Kelly and her novel The Lost English Girl, which draws on the harrowing story of England's many evacuated children and explores how one simple choice can change the course of a life and what we are willing to forgive to find a way back to the ones we love and thought lost. Yeah, and we feature book three of the Right Quotes series titled Writing Process and Tools with audio versions of the forward and the reflections and a peek by the hosts at some of the quotes. And we finish up today with reading recommendations as always, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming up in the next episode. But first, uh, what's coming up with the host or what is up with the host? Uh, Hannah, what's up in your household with little Gwen and everything else that's going My on? My May world. Um, I feel like... <laughs> A lot. Actually, May is a super busy month for us. We um, are getting ready to move next month or in June. So at the end of June, we're heading to Cincinnati. So we're kind of um, getting everything ready to go. And uh, my husband is graduating from his seven year long residency um, in a couple of weeks. So we're just like elated about that. (laughs) It's going to be so (laughs) nice and having some extra time for him to spend with Gwen. And um, we're going to have a couple of weeks off too in between uh, his residency finishing up and then moving to Cincinnati. So just kind of like, you know, reveling in the completion of that um, long journey, (laughs) I think. So we're we're pretty happy about that. Yeah, but you, you've told us you want to come back eventually oh, yeah. right, to the South. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, we're thinking, yeah, this is just a year. I'm not a Midwest gal, so <laughs> <laughs> no offense to all of you Midwesterners. Very nice people out there, but the weather is awful. <laughs> well, I saw you. I saw the picture of you on the beach recently with uh, Gwen, yeah. and I thought, yeah, Hannah's in her element now. I She's, am. I'm a beach girl. I'm yeah. a beach girl. I love warm sun and, you know, the Midwestern winters, and it's like, you know, it's in January here, it's probably like 65, and I'm like, that's perfect for me. <laughs> like, just send us some photos of you and, you know, Huck Finn on the Ohio River. You know, I will. I'll find him. You know, I'll find him. I'll have him catch me a fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good. Well, what's up, Sarah, in your world? Um, gosh, well, first of all, I'm just like seven years of residency. <laughs> like my time. husband's was three years, and he, he was so ready for it to be done, so I can't oh. even imagine. Oh um, but yeah, we've been doing a bunch of like little local trips lately. Like we were in uh, Charleston. We were in Asheville this past weekend. Um, tomorrow we're going to Hillsborough and Cary for the weekend. Uh, my sister just had a baby recently, so we're going to be visiting her family. Um, so I'm super excited about that. And yeah, just trying to find some time for writing here and there <laughs> with <laughs> travel and podcast stuff. Um, I just had another short story picked up by a literary magazine. So happy about that. Yay. And I'll be sure to share the link yeah. once that comes out. Um, yeah. I don't know what right, I'm going to be doing right. in May. That, that feels very far away right now. <laughs> it's too <laughs> early in the morning to think about that. <laughs> well, May, May is the month of moves for the podcast team here. Hannah's going to Cincinnati. I'm, Janet and I are moving to Durham partially. We're going to downsize here in Charlotte and get a small place here and a 
small place there, the things that grandkids will do mm-hmm. to your lives, they'll babies, they'll blow it up for good reasons, and uh, so we'll be doing that. And May is also going to be a busy month for me as far as the uh, Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence goes. May twentieth is the date. If you don't know that, uh, I just finished talking with a group uh, at the uh, Mint Hill Library Book Club and also senior scholars at uh, Queen's University. And over the next few weeks, I'll be speaking. Uh, at the Friends of the Library and two separate chapters of the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Rotary Club of Charlotte, and another book club. People want to know what happened in 1775 in Charlotte, which is a good thing because I wrote a book about it. So <laughs> if you're interested in learning more about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, uh, which John Adams accused Thomas Jefferson of concealing from him and copying the words from for his Declaration of Independence, as John Adams says it, uh, then, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's available to, to see in, uh, in Deadly Decorations, in print, ebook, and audiobook. That's my commercial for the day. That's it. I'll move on. Great job. <laughs> How'd I do in my 30-second pitch, Hannah? Yeah, you're, that was good. My publicist? Yeah, okay. Yeah, Loved yeah. it. That's a lot of cool stuff coming up. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It may be a fun month. Uh, plus, moving. I don't know how that'll work, but uh, we'll see. Uh, all right. Well, uh, look, right after this, uh, we're going to get into Act 1. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are in Act 1. This is our interview portion of the show. Uh, We've got a uh, fun interview today. With author Julia Kelly, the book title is The Lost English Girl. Uh, Sarah, tell us about Julia. Yeah, um, I had a great time talking to Julia. She had a lot of really interesting to say, uh, interesting things to say about writing historical fiction. Um, she's an award-winning author. She writes books about ordinary women and their extraordinary stories. Um, in addition to this book, The Lost English Girl, her novels include The Last Dance of the Debutante, The Last Garden in England, The Whispers of War, and The Light Over London. Um, aside from writing, she's also been an Emmy-nominated producer, a journalist, a marketing professional, and, as she says, for one summer, a tea waitress. <laughs> um, she's lived in Los Angeles, Iowa, New York City, and these days she lives in London. Well, she's traveling around. Yeah. Um, so, Hannah, tell, give us a little the short synopsis and also a little bit of the praise about the book. Yeah, definitely. And I also just want to know, like, I feel like tea waitress would be the most fun job ever. <laughs> would you care for a spot of tea? Um, I imagine that would be in London. But anyway, so, <laughs> yeah, The Lost English Girl um, tells the story, the harrowing story of England's many evacuated children, um, exploring how one simple choice can change the course of a life and what we are willing to forgive and find a way back to the ones we love and thought were lost. Um, Publishers Weekly says that this will hook readers from the very first page and Library Journal says calls it a fascinating novel about a woman's struggle with an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, her parents' harsh treatment of both mother and child, and the separation from her child under the threat of an imminent war. Sounds so good. Yeah, sounds good. And I enjoyed listening to this. And uh, now it's time, uh, listeners, for uh, you to hear what uh, Sarah and Julia talked about. So here we go. Hi, everyone. I'm super happy to be here today with Julia Kelly, author of The Lost English Girl. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This is really exciting to be here. 
So um, I love this book, as I was telling you. It was such a great read, very heartfelt, and also very informative. And I definitely learned about some parts of history that I hadn't uh, known about previously with World War II. So the book is centered primarily around this true historical event called Operation Pied Piper, which took place in England during World War II. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you became interested in it? Sure. So Operation Pied Piper was the um, mass evacuation of people, primarily school children and mothers with infants, but also vulnerable people from urban areas in Britain to the countryside. So basically the government um, in the years before World War II, as people became concerned that there might be some sort of conflict that broke out, the government began to identify what cities might be vulnerable to airstrikes in particular. There was this big fear of bombings, which ended up actually being a very valid fear because you had events like the Blitz. And in this book, I talk about what happened in Liverpool. It's sometimes referred to as the Merseyside Blitz or the Liverpool Blitz. And Basically, the idea was they identified places where um, children could go and be housed, um, and uh, it was housing housing um, uh, evacuees was compulsory, but the evacuation was voluntary. But many parents chose to send their children with their school groups or privately um, outside of Operation Pipe Piper to the countryside to try to keep them safe. And that's actually a story I've known about for a long time because that happened to some of my relatives, um, my aunts and uncles. Some of them were evacuated, some were too young to be evacuated, and my grandparents chose to keep them at home in Liverpool. But uh, they were sent across northern Wales, rural northern Wales, and um, they had very different experiences and really everything from, you know, being treated like an absolute, you know, precious child in in the case of my aunt, um, who went to live with a family who uh, couldn't have children of their own, to my uncles who were treated well, but were sort of um, very much part of part of a, um, a household that you know, already had established itself and they they weren't made sort of the center of of attention in the same way. So these children had wildly different experiences and that was kind of the spark of part of this book. Uh, And then the other is another family story, which is about my mother's great aunt, um, who was a woman who married a man. Uh, She was pregnant uh, outside of wedlock and they had to marry very quickly. She was Catholic and he was Jewish. And this was Liverpool during a time where interfaith marriage really didn't happen very often and could be very disapproved of. So they were actually separated on their wedding day. And the family story is that they never saw each other again. Uh, There was a child, um, and the child never saw his father. Uh, So it's a really heartbreaking story and a fascinating one, and one that made me sit there and kind of ask, well, what what happened? And since I don't know, and none of us know uh, the answers to that, the people who were involved have, have long since died, I wanted to write a book that took the idea of that you know, very heartbreaking event of being married and separated on the same day with a child on the way and spun out a story of what those people might have gone through, especially during the war. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's amazing that these two incredible types of stories of these people who were married and then separated on the same day and had the child who never got to know their father. And then also this idea of children being taken away from their families or voluntarily you know, evacuated from their families and then going to live with another family for some undefined period of time. I mean, th- those two things were both based in reality. It's just incredible. Um, yeah, I- I'm curious, too. I- I'm sure that you did other historical research for this book. I know you've written about different time periods in your writing. Um, 
and this one is set during World War II. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the other research that you might have done to flesh out the the world of the story? Absolutely. Well, since, again, you know, I, I was really taking a, a family story and using it as an inspiration rather than um, the framework of the entire book, uh, I had to create who these people were. And so I'm always looking at ways that I can try to incorporate bits and pieces of my own interests uh, into books because it makes it fun for me to research. Um, so Joshua, the main character, uh, the male, the hero, uh, of the book, uh, male protagonist is a jazz musician. Um, I lived in New York through a lot of my um, adult life before moving over to the UK, and I became kind of fascinated with the old jazz scene in New York, um, in particular Swing Street, which a few scenes take place in New York City before Joshua comes back over to Britain um, during the outbreak of the war. Uh, and when it came to Viv, who's the heroine of the book, um, she becomes a postie. Uh, so she ends up becoming one of the women delivering the mail uh, for the general post office, as it was then. And she uses that as a way to gain a level of independence from her family and to earn her own money. And that's absolutely something that women did during that time. They were taking on roles. Of course, you know, we know the iconic Rosie the Riveter and other stories uh, in the United States. Women all across Britain were doing the same thing. They were taking uh, jobs that could be released, uh, they could release a man to fight. Uh, women were also entering the auxiliary um, services. They were doing all sorts of things. So I wanted to take a look at the um, freedom that being a postie would have allowed a woman during this time and how it could really change somebody's life. There's just so much fascinating subject matter there. And I find for me, and I've heard other writers say this too, sometimes when you're doing a lot of research for a novel, it can be tempting to just go down the research rabbit hole forever, yes. <laughs> especially if it's a subject area that you're interested in. Um, how do you navigate that when you're writing? Like, how do you know when it's time to stop researching and actually start writing? Or do you kind of do both concurrently? I, I do a little bit of both. So I try to have a baseline of research done before I start a book. Um, this was the first book that I wrote as a full-time author. I had had a day job for about 10 years um, while writing before that. So this was a real luxury in a way. Um, I had a bit more time to research, but there's an additional challenge with that that I didn't anticipate, which is you can research until, you know, the end of time and still never feel completely ready to start a book. So at some point I had said to myself, you know, I know enough and I need to go ahead and start putting something down on the paper. So I did, um, I, kind of force myself to after after a few weeks of reading uh, and getting the basic idea of where what and how you know the story would move forward um, frameworks like you know when bombings happened in Liverpool and you know when women were starting to pick up those jobs in in the post office um, so I, I made myself start writing and of course along the way I just end up with so many research questions so I try to stick to my rule of if it's a question that I can answer in about five minutes or less, I will stop and research it. If it's more than five minutes, it goes down on a sheet of paper and I go back and I fill it in later at a different time during the editing stage. Um, my drafts are usually full of uh, TK um, editor's marks uh, just to remind myself that I need to go back and, and fill that in. So it's really kind of a, a dance between pre-research and, and you know continuing to learn as the book is, is growing. Yeah, that, that's a good rule of thumb, that kind of five-minute marker to keep yourself in the flow of the writing, too. 
Yeah, I find it's helpful. I I just I love I love the historical part. I think that's the thing that draws most historical fiction authors to the subject and to the genre is that love of research. But it can be very easy to uh, look up one day and realize you've spent eight hours trying to figure out when you know a certain type of zipper was uh, starting <laughs> to be used in commercial clothing, and you think to yourself, "Is anybody really going to notice?" anything about, did I just spend that long on this question? That's like a fleeting 10 second, you know, moment for a reader, but you know, those details do matter to some people. So it's, uh, it's good to try to get them right when you can. Yeah. And I think, um, a lot of historical fiction readers, it, it seems like are very particular about those sorts of things and they care about getting it right. And I think that it, it all adds up and creates this picture of a full and real world that you're entering um, to have those details in place. It definitely and, does. And one thing that I loved here too that you did in this book was you had um, different media that you were telling the story in. You had some letters, um, some newspaper articles. There were chapters written from the points of view of different characters like Viv and Joshua, her husband, and Maggie, her daughter. Um, how did you kind of decide which format to use to tell different parts of the story as you were piecing that together? I think one of the challenges with a book where two of your main characters spend, well, really three of your main characters spend the majority of the book apart is figuring out how you can intersect those stories and make sure that the story still feels like it hangs together, even if they're not necessarily directly interacting with one another. And so for me, letters became a big vehicle for that, especially with Joshua at the beginning of the book, living in New York while his family was back in Liverpool. And then he goes back um, and decides basically he, he needs to return to Britain and he needs to join up and he joins up uh, with the the RAF, the Air Force. And so a lot of his um, repairing his relationship with his family takes part uh, through through letters. Um, there's some articles as well, just to give kind of signposts uh, about where we are in the war, what's happening. It's it's a it's a handy tool if you need to um, you need to just you know establish what's going on at any given time. You can kind of throw up a you know somebody's walking by a newspaper stand and glances at a headline. Uh, but for me, the the multiple points of view was really really important. And um, when I started writing this book, I I wanted to write. I wanted to write about complicated characters um, who had to do some growing and some changing throughout the course of the book. And I think Joshua is the character I'm most proud of in that regard, because in the first draft, I didn't have him write at all. Um, I had written a man who really uh, doesn't didn't deserve the redemption that he got. And I one of the things I really worked on was trying to dig into his perspective and his acknowledgement that maybe he had made mistakes in the past, but also that that Viv had made mistakes and she carried some blame as well. So one of the jobs that I had as an author was evening out those perspectives, making sure that, you know, Viv acknowledges and understands that she did some things wrong and he did some things wrong as well. Um, And I felt very strongly about also showing the importance of family and um, contrasting two very different families. Viv's family is very traditional, very Catholic, um, very, uh, very ruled by the bounds of what their priest and their neighbors who are also Catholic um, think of them. It really matters to Viv's mom, especially how she appears in the community and in her church. And in the case of Joshua's family, you have a family who some of their some of their growing and changing has happened off page, but you meet a family who really ultimately what matters to them is embracing and wrapping their arms around the people who um, they have around them. You get the sense that they've you know struggled with uh, 
with what has happened in the first pages of the book with the separation on on the wedding day and Joshua moving to New York. Um, and I wanted to make sure that there was room to explore that as well, both through Joshua and through um, through uh, Viv's perspectives. And I think that just with the situation that the novel starts with, you have the characters navigating such tricky waters there with this family that's been fractured in a very significant way. Um, and I, I really felt the theme of forgiveness coming through a lot of times throughout the book, both characters deciding when to forgive each other, or in some cases, when not to forgive each other. Um, there's a lot of resonance for that, too, I think, against the historical context with a society that's been fractured, a world that's been fractured in a much larger scale. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that theme of forgiveness and what you wanted to explore with that in the book? Well, I think I, I'm always drawn to stories where people are learning something about themselves that's unexpected um, and maybe surprising themselves a little bit as well. And so I think in some ways for Viv, it's very cut and dry at the beginning of this book. You know, in her eyes, her husband of less than an hour chose to leave her behind uh, to essentially defend or fend for herself. And she in turn turns to him and says, if you leave, don't come back. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want any relationship with you. And that's something that she has to reconcile that her actions and her choices um, shaped her life just as his actions shaped her life and, and vice versa. So I think there is an element of that um, in the book. I think I'm always interested. My, there's a running joke in my family who I, who I get on very, very well with, and they would like me to preface this. Um, I often kill off, uh, well before the book has started, kill off characters' parents um, because it's it's easier to isolate them in some cases, um, and there's less family considerations. And I very intentionally didn't want to do that with this book. I wanted to explore family dynamics. I wanted to explore... Um, what it is like to choose to live a different life than your family wants for you in the case of Viv and uh, to be embraced by a family who you have come into uh, in her case as well, um, but also to have to ask for a family's forgiveness, um, both in, in Viv and Joshua's case. Um, so I, I think the idea of forgiveness was definitely there from the beginning, but it developed more and more as I wrote the book. And, and another thing that's, you know, challenging and, and interesting for me to explore is I'm I'm not religious at all, but I wrote a book where religion has a strong thread for um, character behavior throughout parts of it. And so people make decisions about what they're going to do that can in some cases be driven by, by that faith and also by that willingness and that ability to forgive. Well, it's interesting you mentioned some things about like family dynamics that are different from yours, religion that's different from from your experience with the characters. Um, in a minute, I have a question I want to ask you that's kind of about that and about writing characters who are different from yourself. But first, I'd love to have you read us a little bit from the book. Do you have a passage that you can share with us? Absolutely. So this requires a little bit of setup. Um, so if you'll just bear with me for a moment. Um, so basically, Viv is living with her parents, um, kind of at their mercy, um, essentially as a single mother, although she is married. Um, but really only in name to Joshua. They've been estranged for many years. And war hasn't broken out yet, um, but it is kind of in the air and it's coming. And Viv has quite frankly been in denial about that until the day that her sister comes to the house while her mother, uh, she and her mother are doing uh, the, the family's washing and says they are evacuating children. It's, it's starting, Operation Pied Piper is coming through, and Kate, the sister uh, he'll meet in the scene, is the mother of children herself, uh, so Viv's nieces, uh, niece and nephews, 
And so Viv, Kate, and uh, Viv's mom are all sitting around the kitchen table trying to figure out uh, and contend with with this news. So uh, I will I will do my best to read. This is where I really gain even more ex- respect for audiobook uh, narrators, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Viv crossed her arms. Mom and dad want me to evacuate Maggie, but she's too young. She should be with me. You should be reasonable for once in your life and do the right thing, said mom. And you should stop sticking your oar in about something you know nothing about, Viv shot back. Kate looked shocked, and mom grew still and silent. Mom, I'm sorry, Viv started. I'm only trying to help my ungrateful daughter, said mom with a sniff. Viv stared at the chipped wood of the dining table, feeling two inches tall. We can't fight, not right now when there are so many more important things to talk about. Kate turned to, Kate turned to Viv and said gently, Vivi, I think you need to consider that maybe what you want isn't the best thing for your daughter. Tell me about Father Monaghan's offer. This is the family's priest who has tried to uh, offer a private evacuation if that's necessary. Viv shook her head. It felt as though the room were closing in around her and she couldn't find an escape. Father Monaghan will make arrangements for Maggie to evacuate to the countryside to a respectable Catholic family, one who wants her, said Mum, folding her hands across her stomach. No, Viv said again, but this time it came out a whisper. Kate took Viv's hand. If we're lucky, it won't be for very long. How can you tell, how can you even think about, Kate dropped Viv's hand. How can I think about sending my children away? Is that what you want to know? The hard edge to Kate's voice shocked Viv. The pair of them had always gotten along. Mum had made it clear that Kate was her favorite, even before Viv's spectacular fall from grace, but Viv had always felt Kate was on her side, her one ally in a house she never really fit into. I'm going to do what's best for my children, Vivi, even if I hate it. I need to make sure they're safe, said Kate. Viv dropped her head to her hands. She didn't want to believe it. They were safe up in the north, so far away from London. How could Germany touch them here? You've taken such good care of Maggie for four years, but you must see that keeping her with you isn't what's best for her right now, said Kate, her tone softening. I'm best for her. I'm her mother, Viv murmured. If we go to war, even you won't be able to keep the Germans at bay, said Kate. Viv's head was spinning. It was all happening so fast. She couldn't think. She just needed a moment. Listen to your sister, said Mum. Mum? Kate warned before giving Viv's arm a squeeze. Just ask yourself, Vivi, will you ever be able to forgive yourself if something happens to Maggie because you didn't want to send her away? Well, that's such a heartrending situation for the characters. And of course, the fact that, it, you know, real people were in that situation is just incredible. Um, and I, I think one of the things that you depicted very, very well and very sensitively in very real ways throughout the book was the anti-Semitism that the characters face, you know, Joshua and his family, Viv by her association with Joshua. Um, and of course, that's something that we also still see today in the news and it's still relevant. Uh, I guess with that in mind, what value do you think there is for readers today in revisiting that period in history? I think that one of the real benefits to reading historical fiction or studying history or, or even just being aware of the past is understanding what's come before and how things don't happen in isolation. Um, and incidents that I uh, Incidents that happened in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s in Liverpool and in other areas of Britain can happen and have happened again. Um, and so understanding understanding that and seeing it and recognizing it and not forgetting about that um, 
violence or hatred or anti- even if it's casual anti-Semitism, you know, just the way that people go about their lives and the opinions they have. Um, it's something that I think if you're aware of, you are a lot more sensitive to um, trying to uh, to stop that from happening and, and actively stop that from happening. Um, I think in the case of this book, you know, I, I really felt a responsibility because I, I'm not Catholic and I'm not Jewish. I found, felt a real responsibility for trying to understand um, both of those religions and both of those ways of life in this part of England at that time as, as much as I could as somebody who is, you know, writing this book in 2021, 2022, um, and who's American and, you know, all of those things that that you layer on top that create your own identity that's different from the characters that you're writing. Uh, so I, I spoke to several uh, academics who were wonderfully generous with their time and giving me context and helping me understand um, what Jewish life uh, might have looked like then uh, through their own work and their own study, including um, somebody who has an absolutely fascinating um, thesis uh, looking at people who um, one of her chapters looks at people who were um, in interfaith marriages uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Really, really interesting because it's not something that we often think about. We think of that as being a very modern thing. Um, so she was able to kind of guide me around uh, some of the things that people might have considered and some of the boundaries that people would have been breaking and what might have happened in families, but also looking at how, you know, individuals are individuals and it's it's difficult to paint everybody with the same brush because you, you just can't right uh, it doesn't matter if we're talking about faith or uh, nationality or or any other kind of identifier um, and then the other was I had the real benefit of um, a lot of again old family stories family you know relatives who could talk to me about the Catholic side of things um, and trying to make sure that I was being fair in representing what their experience had been like. Um, and so, of course, you you lean very heavily on sensitivity readers, um, and I have some wonderful sensitivity readers who did that for me uh, on on both sides. I uh, you know British and American, uh, Jewish and Catholic, and so I really tried to get it right. And there were some you know sleepless moments where I thought, oh, I really hope I've got this right. <laughs> but getting that uh, getting that reassurance is really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, you certainly did, you know, the research and and did all your due diligence. Um, And I think that it's interesting that you say that one of the great values of reading historical fiction is that it does allow you to experience a life outside of your own and and helps us to increase that empathy and, and see what it was like to be in a different time or place or culture, put yourself in a different mindset. And of course, from your own practice as a writer, um, I think that's a big part of what it is to write historical fiction is to try to get outside of your own life experience and imagine someone else's, uh, someone else's viewpoint on the world. Do you feel like as someone who writes historical fiction, um, and you've done that with a lot of characters and different time periods and different sort of experiences in history, has that shaped how you view real people in any way or changed your, your view on the world, um, kind of practicing that empathy in your writing? I, I'd like to think it's made me more curious about people, um, especially trying to understand why people make the decisions they make and why they do certain things, you know, what drives them. Uh, whether it's, you know, experience or culture or any of those other factors, you know, kind of getting at getting at the heart of somebody's motivation. I, I try, uh, and I think most writers try to try this, uh, to write characters who are um, grounded in 
a motivation that's logical to them, even if it doesn't, even if it isn't something that I would do or you would do, that we can understand why somebody's done what they've done, uh, all the way down to you know the villains in books, because I think that makes for a much more interesting book when people are in conflict because of some fundamental part of themselves and 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 their behavior uh, that makes total sense to them and comes in conflict with somebody else. Um, so I, I think that curiosity kind of helps drive some of that forward for me. Yeah, that's a great point too, that I think sometimes it's, it's less important to like a character than to understand them and to kind of know why they tick and why they do the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned earlier, and I think you mentioned this in your acknowledgments as well, that I believe this was the first book you had written as a full-time writer, and you made that transition recently. So congratulations Thank on that. You. That's amazing. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about that transition in your life and what that's been like? Yeah. So I um, I had written, I, I wrote my first, uh, well, part of my first first draft in graduate school as a um, bid to do something other than my graduate thesis uh, to give my brain a bit of a break. So it had taken me a little while, you know, a few years to get that book finished. Um, but basically since that that happened and I was able to get an agent, it's been about 10 years. Uh, and I have published a lot, a lot uh, in that period of time. I was a romance author before I wrote historical fiction um, and romance has a, a notoriously fast pace to its publishing schedule. Um, and I, I've been writing a, a book every year and I'll, I'll be honest, I, I was tired, um, <laughs> and very ready to leave the day job behind. Um, I kept it at it for as long as I could, but at some point I decided I had to really make the leap and it's been wonderful and challenging and unexpected writing full time all at, all at once. Um, I think I thought, time would open up to me during the day and suddenly everything that was having to get crammed into sort of 90 minutes in the evenings or on the weekends would suddenly become a lot easier and in some cases it has and in some cases having unstructured time really is a challenge in and of itself it sounds like a real luxury it is but it is also hard when nobody is sitting there being like you have from 9 p.m until 10 30 p.m when you're going to be too tired to keep writing and you have to get the work done and there's pressure there i used to be a journalist so i respond well to deadlines and unnecessary pressure sometimes um so having kind of me be the only one creating that uh, that structure has been uh, has been a challenge, but one that I've been very glad to to take on. And I think I've got a good system down now. But it definitely took a few months of sitting there and thinking, I'm not writing as fast as I thought I would, and I'm not researching as much as I thought I would, and having to kind of build myself a routine and figure out how to do this all over again. Ten years into a career was a was a real surprise. Yeah, it's funny. I think that's one of the most consistent things that I hear from writers, no matter whether they're writing full time or part time or what type of writing they're doing. It's always a struggle to to find the time and to make that routine for yourself. Um, Absolutely. But I, I'm glad that you're able to to work that into your your life now. Um, and we're going to wrap up soon. But before we go, if you could give yourself one piece of advice as a younger writer that you think would have helped you, whether it's a creative thing or something practical about your writing routine, um, what advice would you like to go back and give yourself as a younger writer? If you don't mind, I'm going to do two because one's not really a piece of yeah. advice. Uh, one is don't sure. listen to writing advice because <laughs> I, I think that's that's being, being a little a little facetious. Um I think that writing advice is great, but only when it applies to you and your situation. So I think you really have to sit down and think about 
is that something that makes sense for me? Um, is it something that makes sense for how I work or what I'm trying to do or what I'm trying to achieve? Because everybody's goals are different. And, you know, one author's success is very different than another author's. Um, I got a really great piece of advice that was um, given to me by uh, the romance author Julia London uh, relatively early in my in my historical fiction career. And she said, you don't want, she said something along the lines of, you don't want a sort of big, splashy moment in your career necessarily. You want long, steady career, uh, a long, steady career. And I think that makes a lot of sense because you can't control the big, splashy moment. You can't control, you know, everything from if you go viral on TikTok to whether you break out onto a bestseller list, um, what you can control is trying to write good work, working with good people who you trust, and trying to build a career that's going to be in the long term something that you're very proud of. And I try to focus on that on the days where I just think to myself, this is really hard, or, you know, why is such and such thing not coming together? Um, focusing on that long career is, is, uh, is the way to go, I think. Yeah, that, that's so true. And I think there's so much that goes on in the career of a writer between, you know, doing interviews like this and building your platform and thinking about the next book. But at the end of the day, it comes down to that. You're sitting in the chair and you're doing the work and trying to write something that you can be proud of. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Julia. This has been wonderful. I've, I've learned so much and I'm so excited to read your next book after this. And uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. Here on Act 2, this is the uh, writing topics uh, portion of the show. Um, usually we have a Charlotte Lit uh, tip and a blog post, but today we are featuring uh, the latest book in the Write Quotes series, uh, be a lot of fun. Uh, we have the audio of the Ford and, and of the reflections we're going to play for you. And we're going to share some of our favorite quotes as well. This is book three of the Right Quotes series. It's called Writing Process and Tools. Um, and before uh, Hannah and Sarah and I jump in and give you some of our uh, favorite quotes from the book, uh, we're going to start off by playing the foreword by none other than uh, Sarah Archer. So here we go. When I moved into my first house several years ago, I was especially excited about having my own office. Finally, a room all to myself for my work. A little temple devoted to my writing. I painted the room with colors that energized me and decorated it with thrift store finds, carefully curated to form my ideal creative space. I spent hours assembling a desk, office chair, a laptop stand, and keyboard tray for the perfect ergonomic setup for typing, where I could have enough space to sit comfortably with my dog, aka Muse. But after the room was completed, I discovered a problem. I couldn't write at my desk. Or I could, but generally only for 10 minutes at a time before I'd get distracted. Since I use my desk for other things, work for other jobs, checking emails and social media, behind-the-scenes business for the podcast, or completing less creative writing projects, my brain saw that space as random task and occasional goofing-off time space, not get in the creative zone for hours at a time space. I found I was much more likely to get several hours of real, focused writing done if I took my laptop and moved somewhere else for the express purpose of writing, whether it was to another part of my house or out to a library or coffee shop. Writers do all sorts of mental jujitsu to maximize their creativity and productivity. We each have our process preferences, longhand or keyboard, Microsoft Word or Scrivener, AM or PM, at home or out and about, 
cheers to my fellow coffee shop people, and capturing snippets of time or blocking out whole days. We have our go-to writing Bibles, Stephen King's On Writing or Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, or Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. Then there's how we approach the creation itself, plotting versus pantsing, working on one project at a time or several, starting at the beginning and writing straight through or jumping around, and developing characters first or story first. The writing process and choice of writing tools can be as individual and subjective as writing itself. No one can tell you how to write or what will work best for you. You just have to experiment. But hearing what works for other writers might give you some helpful tricks to try. Plus, it's fun. Asking authors how they write is always one of my favorite questions in our podcast interviews because every answer is unique. So enjoy diving into these quotes, then go to your treehouse at 4 a.m. with green tea and your lucky notebook and get to writing. All right, Sarah, thanks for setting the mood there for this book. Um, it's great forward and uh, kind of getting me excited about writing process and tools. Uh, although some people don't think tools are exciting, but uh, I just had to get rid of a bunch of them when I was cleaning out <laughs> the shed. <laughs> to get ready to move. And I thought, do I really want to get rid of this? I, mean, I could use a sledgehammer at my new apartment, couldn't I? I mean, <laughs> you might. I don't know. <laughs> you might need these things. Do some remodeling. You know? I mean, and an extender to cut uh, tree limbs. I mean, I might need to lean off the porch or something. Uh, but no, uh, tools are fun. And uh, uh, writing process is one of those topics that uh, in in these books, it's one of the little thicker books, I think, because all of us have this. And I think many people have this desire to ask questions about people's writing processes, right? What are we missing? What am I not doing? What what process might work for me? And so that sort of came out in this book. And we're going to jump right in uh, with a few quotes here, uh, starting with Hannah. Um, and uh, I think Chris Fabry's got sort of a basic uh, yeah. writing tool, right, Hannah? Yeah, he does. He says, um, you got a yellow legal pad and a pen or pencil. You got enough. <laughs> I like that because it's just like very to the point, Chris, just telling us what it is. But I mean, it's true, right? So I feel like one of the first things that, um, you know, like when I started taking writing courses and that kind of thing where you're sort of in your head about like all the things that you need to be creative, which is true to an extent. Like I definitely believe like as you get into it, there's definitely specific things that you want to be able to incorporate into your writing um, process but as, as long as you've got something to write with in your brain um, you know you can get started I think so I thought that was a pretty good funny quick way to say it <laughs> yeah and, and I think that's interesting coming from him because Chris Fabry has written uh, I think 80 books yeah. and uh, he wow. uh, teaches writing and and he's got a podcast and he's won like five Christie awards and uh all he needs is a legal yellow pad. There you go. That's all you need. <laughs> a legal yellow pad. A yellow legal pad. Yeah. It is early in the morning. Yeah. And a pen or a pencil. <laughs> I guess with a pencil you can erase things. Yeah. But, uh, um, so jumping uh, from that uh, for a moment, Sarah, you've got a couple of quotes here. Uh, share mm -hmm. one of those with us and uh, we'll, we'll keep this conversation going. Yeah, so um, this is a little bit related, but Meredith Ritchie, great local author, says, build your writing routine your way because you're going to talk to 10 people and they're going to have 10 different recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that it's part of what's fun about this topic is it is kind of like a nerdy writer thing where we love to talk about like, well, what do you do? And what's your process? Mm -hmm. And what programs do you use? And everyone kind of likes to get into the nuts and bolts of it. And everybody has a different process. Sometimes I ask um, authors that question during interviews, like what's your actual writing routine like? And everybody says something totally different. But, you know, like the last quote we were just talking about, at the end of the day, it's it, 
really just the words. <laughs> like you can mm -hmm. keep it super simple and that's all you need. And also just as Meredith is kind of pointing out here, like find what works for you. Um, I think it's great to take recommendations from other people, but you don't have to feel like your process in terms of like when you write or how long you write or the physics of how you're writing, um, you know, the actual mechanics of how you're putting words on the page. It doesn't have to look like anyone else's process because it's very individual to your lifestyle and just the way that your brain works. Um, so, you know, it's, it's fun to talk about these things and you can kind of pick and choose what works for you and just not worry about the rest, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, shifting gears slightly with a quote I've got, uh, but it, it sort of levels the playing field here. Uh, Maureen Ryan Griffin, um, who wrote a book called uh, Spinning Words into Gold uh, about writing, and she teaches writing locally. Uh, she said this, it's very short and to the point. We all start with a blank page. So no matter what process you've got, no matter whether you're using a uh, legal pad, a pen or a pencil, or the most sophisticated writing tools out there, we all start with a blank page. And that's uh, it's a little humbling to begin with, a little scary in some parts, but also kind of uplifting to know that, uh, hey, everybody starts, yeah. you know, with that blank page. But look at the possibilities, like it's the, it's that blank canvas to throw something on and, and have something to work with. Um, I kind of like that uh, blank page idea. Just sit down and, and see what strikes you. Um, but there are people that get distracted, right, uh, Hannah, yeah. like uh, Elaine Orr? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had to pick this one. I thought it was so whimsical. Um, Elaine says, I do spend a lot of time looking out the window at a bunny that comes and goes, but I'm still thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that reminded me a lot of myself, actually. So I was like, I've, I've got to do this one because um, I think that's such a... Um, I don't know. We all do get distracted. And I think that even the things that distract you kind of get your gears going and kind of play into what you're doing. If it's creative work, um, it's just, I don't know. I think of when I, when I ha even have that vision in my brain of a little bunny hopping across the window, I'm just like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> where are they going? Like, <laughs> where are they headed? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it could lead to a story could. about Peter Cottontail. You never it know. Could. I, mean, I loved yeah. it. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's uh, that's kind of keeping your mind and your attention away from the page, but maybe for a good reason. Maybe an idea comes to you, kind of like uh, what Holly Hughes said, right? right, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can totally relate to that bunny one. For me, it's like the squirrel soap <laughs> yeah. opera happening in my yard <laughs> outside the window every day. But this is kind of similar to um, Holly's quote here. Holly Hughes says, one of the challenges of being a writer for me is giving time away from the work to gain perspective on what's on the page, um, which I think is That's such true. a great point, whether it's like literally just taking a minute to look out the window and give your brain a little bit of space to rest and to think and reflect while you're writing. Or, you know, you're working on a project, maybe you need a week or a month or two months off between drafts. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to take time and just not write at all. Like you can still be maybe working on a different project in that time period or doing research or reading or other things. Um, but I think that for me, I certainly find if I'm writing something and then I take some time away from it and come back to it, I always see things that I was sort of blinded to before because I was too close to it. So that time away is really, really valuable. Um, and I think it's also, it's not just the time in between drafts of a project, but just having sort of like blank time for yourself as a writer, whether it's going on a walk, as I think a lot of writers have talked about on this show, or gardening, cooking, something where you can just give your mind time to like be a little bit less focused, I think really helps with the writing process. Yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent. Uh, and you know, when you're doing moves like, uh, like uh, Hannah and I are done, you do get away from the writing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Whether you want to or not. <laughs> exactly. Whether you want to or not. Uh, 
Well, here's one. Uh, Clyde Edgerton, um, who was on the show, who's a great uh, North Carolina writer, and uh, some of his works have been turned into films, I believe. But um, he says, and this is if, you know, we're, I'm talking about this blank page. Let's say you're looking at the blank page and you're struggling with what to do. And he says, if you don't know what's going to happen next, put two characters together and see what they do. And I love this. And he also talks about uh, writers are kind of like crazy bird watchers. He says, you know, you go into a restaurant and you can't help but when two people are talking and arguing in the next booth, just kind of leaning over. And, you know, maybe you'll pick up something for that next scene you need, that dramatic yeah. <laughs> that dramatic bit of conflict. But he says, look, if you don't know what's going to happen next, put two characters together and see what they do. And I've, I've found that to be true. You bring a character into a scene who's maybe much different than the character that you've been writing. And suddenly uh, something's going to happen. Might be something good, might be something dramatic, might be something uh, that you maybe didn't even realize was going to happen. So, and that's part of the joy of writing. Um, and uh, speaking of joy of writing, uh, Hannah, you interviewed uh, with Sarah Benjamin Gilmer and you have a quote from him. Yeah. He says, I learned to revel in the process of writing. It became such a great outlet for me and it was really inspirational to dig deep. I practiced in a dark room for a few years and that was hard, not getting feedback and not really knowing what I was doing. So yeah, writing is therapy and it was a certainly a way for me to dig deeper into myself. Um, and I kind of remember when he was talking about that and you probably do too, Sarah, it was like a very, um, you could tell, I mean, his story anyway was, was super emotional, um, mm -hmm. but just kind of looking at, you know, putting yourself, like picturing yourself in a dark room, like really trying to figure this out. Um, it, it does, I think that's probably the way it does feel the most like therapy when you're writing something that's so close to you like that, especially for memoirists or, you know, poets, things like that, where you're just really kind of telling parts of your own story, um, like locking yourself in that dark, you know, figuring things out one-on-one -on -one with yourself. Um, I think that was a really, like, that was kind of a um, on-point way to describe what it's like to write in a therapeutic fashion. So I, I just thought that was really mm -hmm. meaningful. Yeah, that's really good. Well, we have um, Kim Wright as uh, your next quote, Sarah. She's sometimes referred to as the story doctor. She's part of <laughs> Uh, Charlotte Litt and uh, uh, other, she's taught in many places. And uh, I thought her quote was interesting, um, counterintuitive in some respects, but not others. Go ahead, share, share that with us, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Well, she definitely clearly knows what she's talking about. I think that she makes a really interesting point here. Um, she says, frequently, I will stop when there's still energy in the scene. If you run the energy all the way out and you stop at a quote unquote good stopping place, then you've got to have to find a good starting place. Um, and this is something that I actually like to do as well is when I have a writing session, sometimes at the end of it, I'll try to kind of leave myself some breadcrumbs for where I'm going next, <laughs> whether it's like stopping in the middle of a scene um, or at least kind of figuring out what I'm going to work on next time or writing some notes for myself to pick up on in the next session. And it just makes it so much easier when you get back into writing to kind of get on your feet quickly and not need as much time to figure out what you're going to do and get warmed up. Um, and I think also it means that in between times when you can sit down and write, your brain is sort of working on it a little bit more and you still feel that excitement of the project as opposed to if you just write everything through and you you know kind of tap out all that energy then you're like okay I'm done and you put it away and you don't want to think about it but I, I like to keep my brain still sort of engaged with the project in between because I I come up with more ideas that way and it just makes it easier to jump back in too. I know but it's kind of like stopping uh, halfway through a good yeah bag of I mean it's popcorn or something you know when you're watching a, a, a movie you got, 
you got to set this down and put it aside so you have something to come back to, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a balance, I guess. Like if you're if you're really into it and you have time to keep writing, you should probably keep writing and not just stop while the, the ideas are flowing. Um, but stop like when you still have a little bit of energy left, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, um, finishing up with these today, uh, George Hovis, uh, uh, great author uh, who also teaches writing um, at the college level, he said this, which I really like. He says, uh, I always allow my muse to override whatever plans I make. And uh, I know, Sarah, you're the the plotter. I'm a little mm. more pantser and maybe I need to plot more. But uh, this probably happens for you too. Even though you even though you plot something out, uh, if your muse comes in and says, no, wait a minute, we need to be going over here. We need to be going over there. You need to add a character here. It's probably a good idea to follow that advice, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's very true. Like you should follow what feels right in the story and what feels exciting to you. Um, and I also think you can interpret this quote of, I allow my muse to override like my life plans. Like <laughs> if I have plans for the day and you just really have ideas and want to write, like you should do whatever you can to try to find that time and space to write. Obviously, life happens. And <laughs> sometimes you can't be like, no, I'm not going to feed my family today because the muse yeah. is calling. So <laughs> like, you have to you have to work around things. But <laughs> if yeah, you that, can... That's a, a competition between your life muse and your writing mm-hmm. muse, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, this, we could sit here and talk all day about the uh, quotes. We, these aren't just our only favorite quotes. They're, the book is full of quotes that we enjoyed uh, because, hey, we put them together. Um, but <laughs> in any event, uh, we're going to play the reflections now. This, uh, These are my reflections from this book, things that I learned um, about the quotes in this book, um, and uh, we'll play that now. One of the biggest lessons I learned about the topics covered in this book is that there are as many writing processes as there are writers. Would-be and published writers, myself included, are very curious about the process writers follow. Where do you write? When do you write? you write in silence or with music playing? What do you drink when you write? What do you wear when you write? How long do you write? When do you know when it's time to stop writing for the day? And do you write every day? Do you write an outline first? Do you write freestyle without an outline? How many drafts do you write? Do you, do you, do you? I asked authors so many questions on their writing process that it should be no surprise I got so many different answers. But it was. There were common denominators, however. As Maureen Grind Griffin said, We all start with a blank page, and as David Badalci put it, there's no perfect place to write. Writers make do with what they have to work with. Take author and columnist Scott Fowler, for example, who has earned 18 national APSE writing awards. He said, I don't go off to the mountain to write. I just go upstairs. Or, as professor, author, and editor Michelle Tracy Berger uh, shared, a long time ago I said to myself, I can write anytime anywhere. These writers have different times to find their muse in the morning, midday, in the afternoon, at night, every day, not every day, or even years later, because as Sam McGee said, it's better that I didn't write the book earlier in life because I grew up right, had more experience, and more understanding of how these people fit into the historical context. These writers also produce their work in different ways, as fast as they can, not stopping to take a breath until the crappy first draft is in their hands, revising words and sentences as they go, hour by hour, day by day, writing quickly one day and editing the whole mess the next day. And yet, no matter their approach, they all seem to realize, as Alain Barnahama observed, that although you can fix bad writing, you can't fix not writing. 
Personally, with podcasting and the rest of my life, my Act 3 seemed busier now than it was when I was practicing law. I write in spurts, preferring to play the what-if game and find my passion before committing to the page. I found that when I do this and become excited about a project, I can write with binge-like intensity for days or weeks. Only when the words start to flow do I think about a routine for the project. But how to stay with it. How to keep that writing seat occupied. Although we will cover perseverance and determination in Book 7, we learned in this book that the drive to complete a project starts with the writing process. As award-winning author Craig Nova said, if you don't like going into a room alone and spending four or five hours every day, if you don't get pleasure out of that, you're really in trouble as a writer. And what about the tools writers use to get the work done? To prepare to write, they said they carry little notebooks, use index cards, take pictures, talk into their phones, and they go to the library or the internet. To get their words down, they write with pens, pencils, typewriters, laptops, desktops, and sometimes they write in their heads, what I like to call my cogitating stage. To organize their words, they use programs like Microsoft Word and Scrivener, and to check the words, they use programs like Spellcheck, ProWritingAid, Grammarly. From time to time, they peek at a physical book called a dictionary. These writers are honest about the hiccups in their writing process, saying things like, I'm pretty easily distracted, and I do spend a lot of time looking out the window at a bunny that comes and goes. They come up with strategies to move them along, like not drinking alcohol while they write, creating a playlist of music that matches the theme of their writing, and playing it while they work, finding a sacred space to write, and choosing not to follow every wild hair. Humility seems to be one key to getting it done. As New York Times bestselling novelist John Hart said, if a writer becomes hubristic and begins to take this for granted or really just thinks he can roll out of bed and bang it out without a lot of effort, that's the first step on the road to destruction. Amen and amen. All right, well, thanks for listening uh, to our conversation about this uh, third book in the series, which is... Uh, the writing process and tools. Uh, we we really um, really appreciate you um, you know listening and uh, maybe even buying the books. Uh, you can order them online and wherever books are sold. And when you do, you support the podcast. You can get the books also by joining our street team. Uh, just check out the podcast books page on the website charlespodcast.com to learn how. And if you join our Patreon page for just five dollars a month. We'll send you uh, one ebook a month from the series for free for every month you're a member. Plus, if you are a member, you have access to more than 150 exclusive episodes. And that's how we got to uh, more than 500 interviews because we we're getting close to 350 uh, interviews here on the podcast. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks for that. We're going to come back here with Act 3 with a few book recommendations and what's coming next uh, right after this. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, Act 3, uh, book recommendations, listener engagement. Uh, what's next? Uh, first of all, let's start with the book recommendations. Sarah, what you got for us? Um, so I've been reading, actually listening to on Libro.fm, This Other Eden by Paul Harding. Um, and this is literary fiction. He's a great writer. I think he's been nominated for a Pulitzer in the past, uh, maybe even one. But the story is, it's fictional, but it's based on this real island um, that was settled by a group of mixed race people. Some of them were descended from enslaved people. Um, I believe they lived there from sometime in the 18th century until early 
uh, 20th century. And in the 1910s, they were forcibly evicted from the island. Land was seized by the government. Um, so Harding is kind of imagining the lives of the people who might have lived on the island and fleshing them out and thinking about what it must, must have been like to live there and what it could have been like when they actually went through this eviction. Um, and he kind of weaves in historical documents as well and just crafts them into really unique characters. The prose is beautiful. It's very lyrical. Um, it's on this like very interesting island setting. So there's a lot of wonderful descriptions of the sea. And yeah, it's just a really beautiful book. That's great. Sounds uh, fun. And you've enjoyed the Libro.fm, I can tell you've been listening yeah. to. Yeah, it's well, especially because like I, I've been reading so many books lately for the podcast and those I usually actually read the, the hard copy. Um, so most of my other time for reading is just stuff that I can listen to while I'm doing other things. Right. So it really helps out a lot. All right, Hannah, what do you got? So I think I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, I might have recommended this book before, but I'm going to do it again. Um, <laughs> I might have, I don't <laughs> that know. Just means, that just means that they missed it the first time around. They're going to definitely Ex- get the point this time, exactly. right? Exactly. It could have been another book. I'm always, I love Wally Lamb. I've talked about that before on this show. He's like my favorite. So I might have done another book by him actually, but today uh, we are water. Um, I'm recommending by him and I was kind of looking back into the vault of my uh, favorite books. Um and because same thing for me, Sarah, I feel like there's so many books to read to prepare for the interviews for the show that, and then sometimes I just can't listen to stuff if I'm like watching Gwen. So I'm sort of just like revisiting some of my faves (laughs) recently. Mm -hmm. Um, But this book is really great. It's about a married couple who um, has been together forever and they get get a divorce. Um, They just, you know, basically realize that they weren't right for each other. Um, The woman actually meets another woman that she falls in love with. And it's just sort of about like the fallout of that decision that she made and what, how it affects their kids and um, where they live and just the, basically the trajectory of their whole entire life. But it also kind of in, in typical fashion of his, you know, he talks a lot about how um, childhood affects, you know, how you are as an adult. So it's, it's just a really great lyrical book like all of his it's just really good so and water almost summer you know read a book about some water (laughs) (laughs) all right well i'm picking uh books this month that have been challenged in schools resulted in either temporary or permanent bans in school libraries uh and this one uh it's kind of hard for me to believe that it uh, has been challenged and banned uh, to kill a mockingbird by harper really uh everybody you know we studied that in school Uh, i read it again a couple years ago uh, it is a classic, um, uh, and again, it is kind of you kind of wonder what's going on here. And when I when I share in some other episodes, uh, some other banned books, you'll hopefully continue to wonder and scratch your head uh, about about this. But I saw an interesting article in the New York Times uh, recently. Um, someone wrote an editorial about this uh, movement here, this uh, thing they call parents' rights, um, you know, and. This is, I thought this was an interesting piece. They said, the reality of the parents' rights movement is that it is meant to empower a conservative and reactionary minority of parents to dictate education and curriculum to the rest of the community. It is, in essence, an institutionalization of the heckler's veto, which a single parent or any individual really can remove hundreds of books or shut down lessons on the basis of the political discomfort they feel. Parents' rights, in other words, is when some parents have the right to dominate all the others. So I don't know, we don't editorialize much or get political much on this show, but hey, we talk about books. And I think it's important here uh, to say that uh, 
we are in solidarity uh, against banning books because uh, books are a way to learn. Books are a way to experience. And uh, people should not uh, be able to tell you what you choose to read. Plus, you're really kind of uh, missing the point when you go challenge a book. You're just driving up sales. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right? true. Yeah. I mean, please go out and challenge my book, Daily Decoration, <laughs> yeah. so that I can get some more sales. You know? <laughs> I've heard it. I can ban your book if you like. You don't like the fact that, uh, you know, there's this thing that happened in 7075. Just, just put me on a ban list or yeah. something. We'll, we'll jack those sales right up. It's yeah. banned. Y'all have any thoughts on this before we move on? I'm shocked. I mean, I think it's great that you're that you're promoting these books. Um, and yeah, it's just like, I don't know, you can find someone who will challenge anything. I guess any book, there's right. going to be somebody who's on the other side of it. But yeah, I mean, if you don't like an idea, you should be able to talk about it. But that doesn't mean that the book shouldn't be out there for people to, to read and discuss. The thing that strikes me the most is, you know, this history makes me uncomfortable. Therefore, we shouldn't have it in the schools. Mm -hmm. Well, if history is not the way history perhaps should have been, maybe it should make you uncomfortable, you know, right. because we don't want to repeat uh, what we did before. All right, well, well, we'll move on from the editorializing here, but for a good cause. Uh, we got Mark West here, Storage Charlotte blog. He's got a recommendation. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is El Cinco de Mayo, an American tradition. It's written by an author named David E. Hayes Batista. This book does an excellent job of covering the history of Cinco de Mayo. Before I read this book, I did not realize that Cinco de Mayo is celebrated more in the United States than it is in Mexico. The author does a great job of explaining how this holiday took off in America and also provides an excellent overview of the history of the holiday, tracing it back to the Battle of Puebla, which was fought on May 5th in 1862. It dealt with a conflict between military forces of Mexico and an invading force from France. If you want to know more about Cinco de Mayo, why we celebrate it on the 5th of May, I highly recommend this excellent book. Thank you. That's right. It's May 9th now, and uh, people are probably still hung over from Cinco de Mayo uh, <laughs> just a few days ago. Uh, yeah. Um, good good recommendation, Mark. appreciate that. All right. We do have an elevator pitch today. Uh, Rita Pendry uh, is with us. Uh, she's been on the podcast before. She is a Charlotte uh, thriller mystery writer. So let's hear what she's got. Her latest book is called Amends. Rita Pendry, Amends. When attorney Cassandra Robbins finds an abandoned baby, it rekindles the grief of her own tragic loss. Against her better judgment, she decides to represent the young mother, opening her to forces that could destroy her career and even her life. Facing a desperate opponent, Cass will need all the strength and perseverance she can muster to save her client and the baby. All right, good pitch. Uh, like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah, tell the folks how we can, uh, how they can get on here with their elevator pitches. Yeah, it's pretty simple to do. If you just go to our website, um, I believe it's on the contact tab, but it should be easy to find. There's a way that you can record your own elevator pitch, um, just directly through the site and keep it to, you know, about 30 seconds. Just tell us a little bit about the book, just enough to draw us in and make us want to read it. Um, and then we'll share it on the show. Yeah. And we, um, we have an episode coming up, I think, uh, 
where Hannah has done the whole description here. We talk about elevator pitches. You'll be able to, if you hadn't listened to that uh, already, uh, listen to that because it was a good one. Um, and uh, let's see, where are we in the show? We're in the part of the show where what's coming next. Uh, so, Sarah, I'm turning the music up here to put it underneath your melodious voice. So tell us <laughs> what's coming next. <laughs> uh, so next time we're going to feature Jennifer Herrera. Um, she's a debut author. Publishers because Weekly calls her a writer to watch. And we have an interview about her suspense novel, The Hunter, which Booklist calls a thriller with depth. We also feature author Rick Flyweitz, who's the author of Murder in Haxford, and his blog post called the differences between writing the first and second books in the series. Um, plus, we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip and elevator pitches and book recommendations. All right. Well, uh, Hannah, you want to take us out of here? Yeah. Just read on, ride on, and uh, rock on. I was trying to think of something else from the show that I could say on, but no, just just rock on. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm into the rock on. Let's, let's rock on. <laughs> <laughs>